Abhishek, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's so great to have you here. I'm delighted that we've been able to connect as we were connected actually by a previous guest on the show, which I always love. And he introduced me to FewSense. I checked out the product. I checked out what you're doing and I really got it. I saw the need. I saw how cool the product is, how simple it is to use. And I really wanted to have you on the show to talk about the product. I'm delighted you're here today. So thank you for coming on. Thanks, Nick. Uh, so before getting into FewSense itself, uh, I'd love to know more about you. Bef behind every great startup is a great founder and there's always a, a great story behind the founder before they actually came to the company that they're working on now. And so I'd like to know a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah, uh, it's been a winding road for me. Uh, worked in the industry for about 13, 14 years before I started on the entrepreneurial track. Uh, so in 2017, I started my first company. Uh, was fortunate to get an exit uh, on it in, in 2019. And then 2020, it was also in the media space. It was an ad, ad tech product. And then 2020 came around and uh, I, I started FewSense after that. So it's been good five, six years since I've been an entrepreneur. Amazing. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that previous company and, and your path to an exit? Yeah, uh, it was a real need that I had identified in my job. Uh, it was an ad tech product for retail brands. And one of the biggest problems retail marketers have is when they advertise online, they might be advertising particular shoes, etc. on Facebook, Carousel ads, etc. What they never know is how much of that is translating into sales at the retail store. Right? So how much of that, the attribution problem. Right, and that's what uh, we set out to solve and solve it and try to do it as much as possible deterministically. So we ended up building pipes into inventory management systems at the retail stores, right? So the SAPs of the world, the Oracles of the world, the new age inventory management systems, etc. on one side. And on the other side, uh, pipes into the MarTech platforms that enable the ad impressions to go out into the ether and track those clicks at an SKU level and then correlate those clicks to SKU sales at the retail stores, right? Uh, so it was an attribution uh, stack. And in 2019, uh, Apple came around, uh, you know, O2O was just starting to become popular and omni-channel sort of marketing solution uh, and attribution was a key gap uh, in the market. And we had a ready product, but we were still very small. So a good good target for a big company uh, to acquire. Uh, and they were about to go public as well, Apple. So subsequent to our acquisition, they did go public. One of the you know, bank busters IPOs in India uh, in 2019. And then 2020, COVID happened. So... Yeah, enough time time to move on exactly so speaking of moving on then uh, let's talk a little bit about FewSense. can you talk to us about how you came to um create the company and and where you kind of discovered that there was an opportunity there yeah uh so i had some ad tech experience uh 
But then 2020 hit and we were all, you know, huddled up home and consuming content like maniacs. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that, oh my God, every single quality publisher or creator or influencer is now starting to ask for subscription, you know, one way or another. And that sort of started a chain in my mind, thinking that if every single quality publisher asks me for a subscription, that's not going to fly. Like I have a limited wallet and bandwidth uh, to incur recurring payments every month, right? Uh, which led me to the thinking that there will be a time when COVID ends, uh, when you know the markets are not doing so well, etc., that people would think twice about subscriptions and something called subscription fatigue would actually set in, right? Uh, so it was a preemptive sort of thinking that if this is where the world is moving, then bite-sizing content, bite-sizing payments, bite-sizing access to content would be of real value, right? And that's that's what, uh, you know, became FewSense. Very cool. What then was your first product that you put out there? What, what was your MVP and your, your path to it? Uh, the MVP was actually very simple. Uh, I somehow managed to convince a publisher in Indonesia, a small publisher, uh, who said that, look, nobody will ever pay for content. Uh, they didn't have subscriptions. And I said, so it doesn't matter if people pay or not. If you try it, it's not going to have any downside for you. If you try putting up the few cents wall uh, on your content, it's not going to have really any downside. And it was just a few cents wall, right? And I told them that, look, everybody who tries to pay, right, even if payments are not there, I'll pay you for for those clicks, right, uh, instead. Uh, and, you know, the, it was a wild success. We, we saw that even in Indonesia, people are trying to take the next step to make a small payment, right? Uh, and the click-through rate, right, which on average in the industry is for ads is 0.06, 0.07%. The click-through rates in this case was about 1%, right? And that really uh, lit a light bulb both for the publisher and for us that, hey, it's got real legs. You know, if there's quality content and if you make it bite-size, pricing it bite size and make it super easy for the user to unlock that content, pay for it, et cetera, then there is real potential in it. So the success from that first customer is what led you to feel confident to go all in on this concept that is now FewSense. That's right. I mean, I had done some surveys on SurveyMonkey and things like that about consumer uh, intent, and I was still not sure, even though the data said that everybody is ready for micropayments, right? But I was still not convinced if they would actually click through and try to make a payment. Yeah. Right? So, mm -hmm. you know, surveys can only take you so far. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, on Twitter, just heuristically, if you go and just search paper article, you will see millions of complaints from users all over the world saying that, hey, I... 
will not subscribe to this. I just want to read this one piece of content. Can I make a small payment? Can I pay for articles? Right. So uh, it's all over the all over the place on Twitter. Um, and the good news is that this problem is a global problem. Right. We are uh, content fanatics by now, everywhere. Right. From Indonesia to U.S. to Philippines to India, people are consuming digital content like mad. Right. So the problem is quite persisting globally. Yeah, it's it's a massive problem and presents a massive opportunity for you. Looking through a few cents, though, it's not just that you're kind of uh, targeting publishers. It seems that you're going into other areas as well. Content creators come to mind as well that I've seen on the site. Can you talk to us a little bit about the um, different other segments or verticals that you're going after and, and the, the product suite as it exists today? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the smaller creators, they uh, they have a, a unique problem, right? The, they all end up in bed with the TikToks and the YouTubes of the world. Uh, it's largely for reach. Uh, the challenge creators really have is they really don't know their end users, right? So YouTube might tell you that, hey, okay, 50% of your subscribers or people who have subscribed to your channel are from the US and so on and so forth, but you really don't know who these people are, right? And there is no way that YouTube or TikTok is going to give that information to the creator, right? It's user-generated content. Their whole model uh, is around monetizing UGC and sharing the ad revenue with the creator, right? So there is no way that the creator gets to the end audience, right? So we have a product called Linkout, much like any link in bio uh, product out there. But the traction on that has been fairly small, right? Uh, because most creators are in it not for monetization, but for reach so far, right? That's what we see uh, across the board. And just now it's starting to happen where TikTok has introduced a paywall as well, an option for a paywall. Um, you know, YouTube has started paid uh, as well, but again, it's under a subscription umbrella uh, with no direct access to the audience or the creator. But TikTok is starting to see that, uh, that just ad revenue is not sufficient, right? So we have a product, link out product, uh, but our entire focus right now is still the larger publishers, right? Uh, because the traffic still goes to large publishers in hordes. For those who haven't yet seen FewSends, if I'm a publisher, your your ICP, uh, what then can I expect? How does the product work for me? Uh, maybe it's best I show you. Yeah, sure. This is uh, Daily Social. It's a publisher based out of Indonesia. Uh, and let's just say you land on this content. By the way, most publishers see 70% of their traffic land on content just by the way, right? Because it's referred traffic. It's not like people come to Daily Social and then start searching for content. It just happens to be fed to the user via Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And people click through and land here, right? Now, when a user, a casual user lands here, uh, you know, over 70, 80% of users are just casual, just happen to be here. This is what they see. Uh, 
they see a wall which is a few cents wall and this content is locked by few cents right and we've made the sign up process uh, the payments etc super easy so within two or three clicks the user has already made a payment and they are back consuming the content right so few cents gets discovered on the content itself so we don't go out and market few cents directly to the consumer it's b2b to c as a publisher then the consumer gets access to the the article as a result of putting in their payment details do i as the publisher get information on that particular consumer yeah yeah the data is co-shared uh, so we have a data share agreement with every publisher we work with uh, much like any ad network, right? If you put in an ad network pixel on your site, then the ad network gets to see your traffic as well, right? So it is the publisher's user, but the user is logging in and paying through FewSense. So FewSense gets to see this user as well. But the data is publisher first. Excellent. And how much data, what kinds of of piece of information is shared with that publisher? Is it just email address or is there any greater depth that's shared with them? Uh, so for login, all we need is a verified email, right? So the publisher gets to see the username and email. Uh, they get to see if the user obviously has transacted or not transacted, which is very valuable data in of itself because it tells you what the pricing should really be for which type of content. So we help publishers price content, right? So how do you price content for which geography can we dynamically change the price for a US user versus an Indonesian user, right? So pricing, price discrimination, all of that comes with our product suite in one shot. That's very cool. I suppose then the natural question here is, it's revenue share. How, how much, how do you make money? And then how do you, how do you set that pricing with the with the publishers? So uh, typically we tell publishers to price it at one-fifth of their subscription price uh, as a starting point. And the reason for that is uh, data says that subscribers typically visit sites, the sites that they subscribe to less than five times in a month. So even real subscribers end up engaging with the site less than five times in a month. So if you price content as a starting point uh, at one-fifth of your subscription price, uh, there is a natural tendency for more engaged users to buy the subscription instead <clears throat> and for less engaged users to buy the a la carte option. Right? So that's a starting point. But then our data starts to tell us that, hey, you know, the startup category in this daily socials example, the startup category, uh, we are seeing a lot of conversions at this price point, maybe take the price a bit higher. And on other categories, maybe take the pricing a bit, a notch lower, right? Or just don't show few cents on this type of content at all because there are no conversions happening, right? Just let that content be free. You you described I think those particular that cohort of users or consumers as never subscribers. How do you 
advise or identify someone who is a never subscriber? That's a great question, like right? And that's one of the things that is an education uh, in the industry that we are quite keen to get out there. Uh, every publisher, every content creator, they know that their subscription rate will be less than 1%. That is, if you have 100 people coming to your website, less than 1%, less than one user will actually end up subscribing. So even New York Times has 350 million unique visitors, but less than 7 million subscribers, right? So New York Times has a subscription rate of 2%, say. Uh, that's after 10 years of being in subscriptions. Uh, but most publishers would throw a wild party if they hit 1%, right? So every publisher knows this, that 98, 99% of their audiences are technically never subscribers. What they don't know is which 1% is the real subscriber and which is which. So segmentation becomes super important, right? And we have really good segmentation engine, which allows us to show few cents only to never subscribers. As an example, a user has come to your site and you show this user, anonymous user, your subscription paywall. The user rejects it the first time, comes back again a couple of days later, and at this point, we can inject few cents because the user has already told us by virtue of not subscribing to you the first time that they're not interested in subscribing, right? Second, a user could be coming from a geography which is not your core geography. So Daily Social is an Indonesian publisher and likely if there is audience coming to this site from outside Indonesia, they are casual audiences who just happen to land on the site, they are likely not going to subscribe with you. So geofencing is a key capability that we provide to publishers as well. There are many other proxies we have in our system, so publishers can set up those rules and off they go. It's fascinating. It's really smart. And I've, I've got so many questions that are coming to me right now. I'm, I'm picking back to something you said towards the start of the conversation, which was about subscription fatigue. And I wonder, is, is one of the advantages of FewSense that for those consumers who maybe um, have gone through attrition, they, they've, they've stopped a subscription with a, with a provider, that actually a few cents provides a way to re-engage those users who have abandoned that you can say, well, actually, okay, you're not in the position right now to be able to pay for the full subscription, but actually with this tool, we're able to engage you and you're able to consume content that you previously loved. Yeah, I mean, so we see many use cases. Uh, so much like in e-commerce, if you abandon an e-commerce cart, uh, you get an email afterwards saying that, hey, this is your cart, you abandoned it, you know, some more literature around the products you have in the cart and trying to convince you to take that subscription, right? Uh, or to buy that product. In our case, publishers use this data uh, to send, uh, you know, abandoned cart emails saying that, hey, you didn't buy our subscription, but hey, what, guess what? You can just buy this piece of content if you're interested, right? At least get into our subscription funnel. Yes. Right? So on one hand, uh, it explodes the top funnel for subscriptions for our publishers. And on the other hand, for churned users, for churned subscribers, 
it's a definite win if you know they start using few cents at least they are still part of the you know the the funnel it's very smart there's another aspect of few cents that i saw and i'm wondering if you can talk to to the this this area and that is about i think you described it as micro sponsorships as opposed to micro payments and i'm wondering if you can talk about that and how that works for for these publishers right so few cents wall uh shows up it locks the content we manage the rights access rights to the content and the user can pay but also a brand that is interested in the same audience of daily social in this case uh could advertise on our wall and say hey look we will sponsor this content for you if you are willing to share your data with us so if the user explicitly opts in to share their data with this advertiser the advertiser is happy to pay this 50 cents right so it becomes a micro sponsorship with real attribution attributions in my gene pool so uh once again right so from an advertiser lens this becomes a really high quality cbl campaign yeah it, it's it's very cool when i saw that i i was very keen to ask you about it because it makes a lot of sense to me um and i think it's a great a great aspect to the solution i'm then wondering how it is that you go to market how do you acquire these particular customers for a few cents yeah uh so we have a two pronged uh, strategy uh, one is direct to publisher uh a lot through cold outreach right um we have been doing all of our outreach from singapore so far but now we are seeing a fair bit of inbound coming from india us right so we are thinking about expanding teams uh in these markets uh so that's one channel but also partners uh we are going to announce a very massive partnership uh in japan very soon uh where there are vendors who address other needs of the publishers already right so there could be a vendor who is helping publishers with advertising solutions right now that vendor already is working with i don't know thousands of publishers and the vendor knows that advertising is not going to probably remain the mainstay of revenue for all of these publishers going forward right so as much as uh you know the publishers are looking for other solutions to diversify their revenues so are such vendors right so they can take us to market with their existing publishers as well right so we didn't anticipate channel partnerships coming so early in our go to market and again you know it came in bound and we realized how quickly this can progress um so that's definitely become a core part of our strategy going forward uh in india us as well right so these are the two uh main uh strategies and of course we have uh a, a big referral network of consultants uh even stuart the founder you interviewed last uh he is an advisor with us uh so he helps us uh you know uh get the word out right so the sales motions are very b2b yes yes that that um 
leads me to a question about partnerships because I think under or within the current climate, um, founders are looking for new ways and cost-effective ways uh, of distributing and getting access to uh, a, a customer base. I'm wondering, would you have any um, pieces of advice for founders who are considering channel partnerships uh, to grow their business and what tips you might have for those founders from your current experience? Um, you know, to be honest, we've failed at a lot of partnership proposals uh, we have, you know, tried before, right? So in in our mind, what we learned is that if it is not inbound, uh, if you are, I would say, pre-Series A, uh, proactively going out and starting sort of a channel partnership proposal, etc., rarely ever works, right? Uh, you're just too small for the partner, right? Uh, so they're looking to get their match rather than help out a smaller startup, right? So I would recommend most startups to not look at channel partnerships early on. Uh, until they reach a certain scale. What would that scale be? What what would be some of the characteristics that you'd be looking for and you'd say, okay, at this point, uh, it makes sense to start looking at channel partnerships? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say what... I mean, I'd say Series A, a legitimate Series A, not the 2021 Series A, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, is a good indicator of product market fit. Right, that where you know your direct go-to-market channels are working, you've cracked uh, the puzzle, uh, that would be a good point to start exploring channel partnerships. Right? Uh, it's hard to put a revenue number uh, because it differs for different startups and different industries. Uh, but I'd say a legitimate Series A, when, you're ready, when you feel you're ready for that, that's a good time to explore or at least give it a shot. Who should be in charge of establishing those partnerships? Should that be somebody in business development, people who are already doing sales, or should that be founder-led? I think founder-led early on, uh, these are very different skill sets. Uh, people in BD have a completely different gene pool. They are hunters. They want to close. Um, you know, And if you don't have that as uh, your sales team, then you're doing something wrong to begin with. Uh, but the partnership person has a very different uh, mindset, right? Uh, they they are looking very long term. They are trying to find synergies. It's more value based uh, kind of process, right? It's long term, uh, and a lot of processes have to be set in place. So you have to before you sign a partnership, you have to think of ten things which are going to come as uh, you get that partner on board, right? So making it super easy for the partner to onboard with you is very critical, right? And it's probably the founder who can actually think of all the steps that would be needed. So for example, uh, uh, Japan, the partnership we're going to announce soon, we, <laughs> we already knew that the moment this starts to take shape, we would have to make sure our wall is bilingual, right? Uh, the few cents account of the user, when the user actually starts to make a payment, 
uh, etc. All of that has to be in Japanese as well, right? The management dashboard of the publishers that this partner is going to onboard, that has to be in Japanese as well, right? The sales kit, the training material, uh, their analytics dashboard, everything, right? So you got to think of how you're going to roll it out and phase in phased approach uh, and plan that really well with every partnership. So early on, I'd say it's probably the founders who are the best and they understand the motions that it takes to get a partner on board it. And also understand what implication does that have on your own team? Do you need to scale up your own support team? Who is going to do the onboarding of the clients coming in through that partner, right? So all of that, all of those processes need to be buttoned up even before the contract is signed, right? So otherwise, it, even the partner knows it's not going to go anywhere, right? So I think early on, founder, uh, but then after that, get a serious partnerships person who's done it 10 times before. I think that leads me really nicely onto my next question. You were talking about growing out a, a team. Um, your current team, what, what's the structure of it? And then also, are you looking to grow out the team? Yeah. Uh, so we are Singapore-based. Uh, we have uh, regulations around payments uh, for which Singapore suits us really well. Uh, we offered the end user a wallet where the user can actually store value so that they don't have to check out every time, right? Uh, and for that purpose, Singapore serves as a good headquarter. So the founders are based here, we met here, uh, but the broader team is in India. Uh, and now the scale up with the partnerships coming on board, publishers in different time zones, etc. cetera. Uh, India seems like a good location, both from a language point of view where the founders can communicate with the broader team, uh, proximity to Singapore time zones, etc. So the scale up happens both on the business uh, success, uh, onboarding teams, uh, engineering teams, all of that growth uh, in the foreseeable future is out of India. What does the headcount head growth look like over the next, let's say, six to 12 months? So we are 12 now, really small. Uh, the If things go well, uh, we are looking at maybe 30, 35 people uh, in the company by end of year. Um, but, you know, markets are tough, so we have to always keep an eye out on our burn uh, and, you know, make do with less, right? So it really depends on how it scales from here, right? So we want to match our costs based on revenue. That leads me very nicely on to the question of financing and of your approach to maybe fundraising. Are you looking to raise at the moment? The market is a lot more difficult than it has been. Um, and what's your what's your thinking around that, having, having gone through this before? I think uh, it's super important for founders to find investors who understand the industry you're operating in. Right, so uh, if you don't have that match, then it's it's an uphill battle, uh, and more often than not, it ends up in a conversation like, "Hey, it's too early," um, 
and they'll need because the investor is not able to build their own hypothesis around where the market is moving, where the puck is going to be, right? Uh, so in the early stages, it's super important to find uh, investors who at least have an idea of where this industry is moving, right? Uh, of course, if you're building in a hype segment, right? Today, if you're building in AI, uh, then it's probably easier to throw darts. Um, uh, last year, if you were building in Web3, right? So those hype cycles are there and that's great. So, But if you're building outside of that, then you really need to be surgical about which investors you reach out to. Right. Um, so that's my only advice. I don't think fundraising is hard if you're actually building uh, a, a good company which has a large TAM. Right. Um, so I don't think it's that hard. Uh, but yeah, like if you're building outside of the hype cycle, uh, then you have to be surgical on who you reach out to. Are you planning on going to the market to raise for a few cents? We are. We are raising a small round now, largely to expand India and US um, BD efforts. So we are raising a small round, not a big one. Are there any interesting roadmap items that you're free to talk about uh, that we can be excited by coming down the line? Yeah. Uh, so the biggest thing that's going to come out is, uh, you know, the network effects play where FewSense is building a user graph of which user is consuming what type of content, what price are they willing to pay for which type of content, from which geography, all of that, right? Now, the next step from here is that FewSense starts to recommend more content to the users within the FewSense network, right? So we are super excited about that. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, not only do we provide the micro access solution to publishers, but we also provide audiences, new audiences to publishers, right? Uh, so we start to take shape of a network, right? So today the publishers view us primarily as a micro access layer uh, with micro payments and micro sponsorships. But going forward, uh, we become an audience development engine as well, right? So we are. Uh, super excited about that. It's a, uh, it's a tough nut to crack. Uh, the, the only worst thing you can do uh, in this is sending the wrong recommendation, right? So you so you got to test it and back test it a few times, uh, your AI, uh, before you actually roll it out. So I think it's still probably a couple of quarters away, uh, but... I'm personally super excited when that actually goes live. That sounds fascinating and really exciting. I can't wait to see that as well. Um, Abhishek, I don't know why this is exactly. Um, maybe it's not a maybe it's not a coincidence, but of I'd say about forty to fifty percent of the guests so far on the show have gone through the experience of exiting uh, successfully exiting a previous startup. Uh, and I, I'd like to ask you, uh, as I've asked them as well, about their experience of that, but more particularly. What advice would you give to another founder who is maybe at that stage where they're starting conversations with prospective buyers? Um, what what might be your kind of top two or three tips for those founders as they're considering an exit? 
uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in inbound. Almost always works better if the interest is inbound, right? Um, uh, so I've never done a proactive uh, outbound exit. Uh, so I probably can't speak to that, uh, what the strategies might be behind that. But uh, put yourself in the right place to be discovered by the right buyer. Uh, what might be some of the pitfalls that people should look out for when when exiting, and and actually when 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 is the right moment? When is when do you think is um, the indications for founders say, do you know what, an exit is appropriate now as opposed to continuing on with this uh, under under our own umbrella? Yeah, I can only uh, probably speak about my experience and why I decided to uh, exit. So. It was a B2B solution uh, catering to retail brands. And as a naive founder, what I completely missed is that in retail, the marketing decisions or the marketing tech stack decisions are almost always based out of the headquarter, right? So Singapore was probably not the the best place to have uh, originated this business, right? There was no regulatory reason to be based out of Singapore. Uh, so, you know, trying to get to the larger brands, uh, was extremely difficult without having feet on street in the markets, in the Spains of the world, which are sort of the nerve centers of fashion retail, uh, US, um, you know, parts, other parts of Europe, uh, China even, right? Uh, so the go-to market was actually something which I knew that I had to probably raise a lot for me to establish the right go-to market for this. Within Singapore, Southeast Asia, and India as much as we could, a lot of retail is run as a franchise operation, right? So you can only go so far with a franchisee investing in a tech product uh, as opposed to going to the main brand, right? So I would say if uh, you or building good product, have decent traction, but go-to-market is becoming challenging without uh, sort of having, you know, funding in place, et cetera. Uh, you know, it it's probably not uh, going to scale much after that, right? So it's probably good to find a buyer who can complement that go-to-market gap for you, right? And Apple was just that, for chauffeur, where they had feet on street and markets. It's large company. It was about ready to go IPO. Uh, so it made the marriage made total sense. In your previous startup, you you had investors. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, we had uh, tech stars, right? So we had raised a small round uh, from tech stars, right? So that's, and then friends and family with it. Okay, yeah. My, my question was going to be about our, how did you overcome maybe particular terms or convincing uh, investors that you know this was the right time to sell? Because sometimes founders can have terms in their in their sheets which basically make it difficult. We didn't have those terms, but even for tech stars, uh, it was pretty evident uh, to them as well that you know to really scale this, we would need to hit the headquarters of the retail brand, uh, and until we 
had access or, you know, feet on street, we were not going to do that, right? There's no way we could crack Nike globally uh, sitting in Singapore, right? So, uh, you know, they were, they were right on board. They're like, this makes total sense. They got a multiple, small one, but they did. And, you know, it was a happy ending for everyone. Excellent. Well, Abhishek, this has been fantastic. I've had such a good time chatting to you, learning more about FuseNs, the opportunity that you're tackling, uh, the massive TAM uh, that you're going after. Uh, and I can't wait to see what you do next as you grow out the team, as you roll out this partnership, as you roll out these new features. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what happens next. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Nick. It was amazing. <laughs>